You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Anne Velisis is a historian and the author of Discovering the Unknown Landscape, A History of America's Wetlands. Her new book is Kitchen Literacy, How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back. Thank you for joining me, Anne. Thank you, Rick. Anne, at the very beginning of this book, we meet Martha and enter Martha's kitchen. It's not the Martha we all think we know, is no. it? <laughs> no, it isn't. It's Martha from 1790, an extraordinary woman who was one of few who kept a diary of her everyday life. And so I found it to be a really rich source for tracking down what a woman knew about her foods 200 years ago. T- tell me, when were these, did these diaries surf- first surface? You know, I don't know if I can tell you that. Um, they were written about by Laura Thatcher Ulrich in a wonderful book called The Midwife's Tale that focused on Martha's work as a midwife, and that's how I came upon them. Um, but within the past 25 years, I would say. One of the things that, that we learn for, from Martha is that women really owned the garden and spent a lot of time there, and, and it was, but it was part of a natural landscape. Yeah, it, they considered the garden their own space, and they did consider it part of a of a natural landscape. And what was extraordinary to me was just how much Martha had to to know to orchestrate her family's eating in the garden. I mean, she grew dozens of varieties of different plants, each of which had different, um, you know, a different way of growing, a different way of germinating, a different way of reproducing. And Martha really had to be on top, of course, of saving seeds, preserving foods. Um, she lived in Maine, so there were frosts. She had to know when to plant things. Um, it was really remarkable how much she had to know. When these people were eating their bread, that was baked with flour milled from local grain. Yeah. Her her husband was a miller, and not only that, he grew his own grain. And so um, I found it interesting that in her diary she would she noted that the um, the bread she baked with flour their own flour, grown by her husband, milled by her husband, she thought tasted quite fine compared to other flours that she would use at various times that she got in trading. And I thought, gosh, what an amazing experience. You uh, mentioned this word, and I think it's a really interesting word because it really goes across the, the whole book, the, the food shed. Mm-hmm. It, what is the food shed? Well, food shed is a word that's similar to watershed. It refers to the area from which our food comes. And I like to think of it um, kind of from an aerial perspective um, with lobes reaching out across the landscape, going out maybe like petals of a flower. And so in Martha's time, the food shed was really quite local because most people were rural. Um, Most food came from local areas. Of course, now if you envision a modern food shed, um, a meal that we would eat today, these lobes might reach all the way across the globe. At Martha's time, people did use foods from afar, things like cinnamon, but only in tiny amounts because it cost so much to transport foods back then. Now, of course, a much greater um, amount of our diet comes from afar. And she could really, one of the things that that you talk about that I thought was really interesting was that she could stand in her garden and look and see where all her food came from. Yeah, she could see where the great majority of her food came from because gardens stretched out for about 
two acres. That was a typical size of um of a farm area, and um yeah, it was just. And if she didn't couldn't see it with her eyes, she knew. I mean, she could walk there. She got things from her neighbors regularly. It was really a very intimate knowledge she had of the places and particulars of how foods were grown and also the stories. She really knew the stories of her food and that really struck me, especially as I followed through her diary and, and found little details about foods appearing again and again, you know, about, for example, a turkey when it hatched, um, when it ran to a neighbor's yard and kind of got in trouble. And then when she decided, um, when the simple words appeared, killed turkey and made soup. Um, just capturing this seamless transition from life to death to life, um, you know, with no squeamishness, of course, at all. And they also, they used pesticides back then, but they were natural pesticides or, or pest killers. Chickens. Yeah. Chickens and children. Chickens and children. And uh, and sometimes if you look at old almanacs and old farm journals, they used um, concoctions of repellent plant um, substances like nicotine and uh, hellebore and walnut um, seeds, all sorts of things. Um, but in Martha's time, I was amazed to find that pests really rarely showed up in her diary as a problem. I think in the 15 years of, of her diary that I looked at pretty much day in and day out, I think she had pest problems about six times that she mentioned. Um, and she'd go out and pick off the bugs in the morning. I think it's because she had a very varied garden because she lived in a place where there were frosts every year. And it was a place where um, there was uh, there just weren't that many gardens yet. And at the time, I think there were fewer pests to European plants. But she just mostly regarded insects as kind of bugs as the kind of just part of the scene of, of food. And as soon as you brought a vegetable into the kitchen, you just cleaned it off. And, you know, that was just the way it was. One thing that, that struck me was that Martha could might sometimes plan a year ahead to cook. Right. Yeah. I know. This was this is what was amazing to me. You know, to eat cabbage in the spring, she had to plant the seeds the spring before, nurture um, the plant through the summer. In the fall, she had to dig it up carefully, bed it down in a root cellar through the winter, and then plant it out again in the very earliest part of spring after danger of frost had passed to get a flush of early spring greens, which of course were really important after a long, hard main winter when there weren't vegetables. And then she had to let some of those plants um, nurture them through another summer to get the seeds. And that was just for one plant. So this is a somewhat typical woman of, of the year 1790. She knows everything about where her food can, has come from. She's seen it. She's planning a year ahead almost her meals a year ahead, which is really pretty phenomenal and particularly different from our current experience of food. Yeah, that's what really struck me. I just realized, gosh, my own experience of cooking and eating is, you know, last minute, oh, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? Run to the store and get it. It was just such a different mindset. And, you know, we've been talking about the details of Martha's life, which are rich and wonderful, and I love the stories. But the thing I really wanted to get at in this book is is that... Um, is that change in our how we think about uh, food and how we think about our relationship with the rest of the natural world, with the rest of um, the world that we live in. And so um, that contrast, I think, is just a remarkable contrast to note and just imagine just in 200 years this transformation that's changed not only in our food infrastructure and technologies but in our own minds and mindset as well. You go on to talk about the very first American cookbook, American Cookery, by Amelia Simmons. Yes, that's a fascinating cookbook. And I found that in many ways it it 
uh, it came out about six years after Martha's Diary. In many ways, it corroborated similar kinds of details that I found in Martha's Diary, especially with um, the expectation that people could know very specific things about where their foods came from. And um, for example, the cookbook and other cookbooks recommended that fish caught in deep water or under a waterfall were better tasting than those caught in still water. And, um, and many of the recipes for vegetables started in the garden with times that you should pick something or, in fact, varieties that you should plant. Um, and when it came to meats, um, I was really interested to find that it was recommended that home cooks know very specifically things like the age, sex, and background, like the work history of animals that became their meats. Now, again, if you think about the contrast between how we eat meat today, these kinds of things, we don't even think about meat coming from an, an animal that has had a, a life, a background, a, a story. We you prefer know? not to. We prefer not to, <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's part of uh, you know, the whole story. And when I get to, when I talk about the industrialization of, of the food system, and it, it, it starts basically to become unappetizing. And so we, we learn new ways to think about our foods. And, and what led to the the industrialization of our food system? Well, you know, there's there are many factors, of course. The, the Probably the biggest underlying factor is um, America's population grew, we, our cities grew, and to supply cities with food, food sheds expanded, and the food production system industrialized um, with different types of techniques. Um, in my book, I, I talk about a number of them. One of the ones I focus on in particular is canning. Um, because I found it to be a really fascinating, um, fascinating topic, in, especially in dealing with, uh, in regards to this matter of how we know and think about our foods. Um, because when people first started encountering canned foods, they were very skeptical. And I realized it was because canned foods, even though we think of them as being familiar today, were just utterly novel. And they were very high tech back then. You know, if you think about it, they were these silver capsules of industry. Whereas before cans, foods were leafy green and earthy and fleshy and you smelled them and you poked at them and you could see what was inside. That was the big thing with cans. You never knew what you were getting. So um, people really had to come to terms with learning new ways to think and know about their foods with cans. And um, some of the ways that they came to know these new foods had to do with the labels that were put on cans. Of course, that became a new way that food manufacturers communicated with consumers, with, with cooks. And initially, the kinds of information that were on can labels were pretty much the same traditional things that people expected to know, like where it came from, how it was made, very specifically. But through time... Um, Basically, the advertising industry sprouted up at the same time as the food industry sprouted up. And people who studied advertising started to realize, you know, this information, the specifics, it's not as appetizing as um, it needs to be. And so they started um, trying new techniques of selling foods um, that played more with our emotions, more with um, the realm of the sentimental. And so um, we, we come to value new criteria when it comes to our foods. It was from the way food smelled and tasted to the way it looked. We want, we wanted something bright and shiny. Yeah. Well, we were we were used to relying on our senses and including our eyes, but um, we started learning to evaluate foods 
based on new criteria. And, and some would say we started eating more and more by eye. And this is something I picked up um, through some of the characters I wrote about in my book, people who started to realize that, this, that, um, that shoppers' expectations and knowledge was changing it as it was, as it was happening. One thing that happened was that <clears throat> the food shed changed from being the the land where the food sprouted. And you have this great description of, of Washington Irving, who looks out across the land and sees it sprouting literally all the food that, that's on it. Right. And then the market became the food shed. Right. I it, It's a really wonderful um, scene that I've I created in the book, which is based on documents that describe markets in New York City, and there was just so much that came to market that, um, in some ways, it was a forerunner of our experience at the supermarket today. But people who lived in cities didn't have any idea what was happening beyond the market, and so there was just this sense that what was there was the food shed. And of course, um, beyond the market, at that time, some serious things were happening. Um, at that time, we relied much more on wild foods, for example, fishes and wild life, wild animals. Um, and as railroads reached across the land, um, they would bring in wildlife, wild birds from much farther and farther away. One of the stories I tell is about passenger pigeons, um, which some people have said to me, gosh, you know, I realize passenger pigeons went extinct, but I never understood that we were eating them, that city dwellers were eating them. And um, that's part of the story. You know, people were just eating what came to market. And um, lo and behold, some foods were depleted owing to over-harvest of, um, you know, market hunting, overfishing. And um, at that, but because the food shed was so large, um, you know, once the, those pigeons were gone, then they just ate a different kind of bird or a different kind of fish. Um, another example had to do with salmon, you know, at first, the markets on the East Coast, of course, were selling Atlantic salmon. But when those, um, when the Eastern Rivers started to get dammed for industry, the fish just started coming from the West Coast, and without really any disruption in the marketplace. And I think that this, this transformation from being dependent on local food sheds, where you can kind of see the effects of what's happening and come up with solutions to these natural resource conflicts, versus just getting your food from afar and having no clue what's going on. And that's more the situation, of course, that we're in today. And, and one of the men who's directly responsible for this is a gentleman named Gustavus Swift. <laughs> yes. One of the interesting characters, just an amazing, extraordinary entrepreneur whose story I tell is Gustavus Swift. He realized um, that he realized it just a great opportunity um, of, of getting meat to these growing cities. And um, he realized that at that time, in the late 19th century, um, animals were shipped to market by rail. Um, and thousands of animals were shipped from the Great Plains increasingly to cities like New York and Boston. And he realized that there was just so much waste um, in terms of the weight. It w they were so, the animals were heavy. And also, the animals were getting bruised and banged, and some of them would die en route. I mean, it was just not... A good system, and he realized, oh, if I can bring some of the ideas of industrialization to this meat business, we can eliminate this waste. We can be more efficient, um, and we can just ship the meat to market and in, uh, in, in some come up with some good byproducts too, like lard and oleomargarine. And so, the thing that amazed me about Swift was 
he just overcame so many impediments. I mean, he had to figure out how to create these massive feedlots in Chicago and, and get feed there to animals so that they can be um, kept year-round so they'd always be ready for disassembly lines, massive disassembly lines where animals could be killed quickly. And then to get the meat to market, he had to design special ice cars, and he had to construct this enormous ice infrastructure of ice workers, ice houses en route, and um, ice ponds to supply the ice houses. On and on it went. And then even when he got his meat to market on the East Coast, he still had to overcome this tremendous customer revulsion because people were not used to the idea of buying meat that had been butchered a thousand miles away. That really kind of flew in the face of conventional wisdom about the idea of eating fresh meat. And so um, at that point, he he set up his own shops. He first tried to sell his meat through butcher shops, but the butchers didn't like the idea especially. He He set up his own shops. And then he finally had to reduce his cost, his prices below his cost of production to finally get people to try it. Time-honored method of taking over the market. Exactly. I think it continues today. When people finally tried this um, meat that had been fed corn and feedlots in Chicago, mass butchered and shipped east, it actually tasted better than the animals that had been shipped by train thousands of miles that had kind of been haggard and bruised up. And of course, over the course of uh, generations, meat, you couldn't compare this new corn-fed meat with, let's say, meat from a pasture in the past. And so that just became the new norm. Of course, it was cheap. There were lots of new immigrants coming to cities who were just delighted to have cheap meat, even if it was, um, you know, butchered a thousand miles away. And so there were a lot of forces that came together. But ultimately, what happened in this transformation is that we started thinking about meat in terms of cuts, like pork roasts and ribs, and and we forgot that meat comes from real animals and real places, and um, it's an interesting transformation. One of the interesting characters I really liked was uh, Harvey Wiley in The Poison Squad. Yeah. Harvey Wiley is a wonderful character. I feel like he should be more of an American hero than he is. He um, he was the head of what would, might be called considered the first FDA. It was the Bureau of Chemistry. It was the predecessor of the FDA. And um, he started his career studying adulteration of food. So, And he found in the 1880s that maybe 15% of America's foods weren't what they were supposed to be because people were, you know, sneaking... Uh, sawdust into flour and, uh, you know, weird dyes into jams, hayseeds into uh, strawberry jam, all sorts of devices, you know, ruses were showing up in foods. And um, and it just at the same time, preservatives and artificial colors started being used more and more um, in manufacturing foods. And he was really concerned about this because He was trained as a chemist, but he grew up on a farm like many people in the mid to late 19th century did. And so he had very traditional expectations about foods, and he didn't like the way foods were changing. Um, He thought that maybe preservatives, and this was kind of a common thought at the time, were added so that manufacturers could use lower quality ingredients, and he felt like it was really all about deception. 
Um, and so he decided to do an experiment, which he convened a healthy group of young men known as the Poison Squad. They weren't, they didn't start out being known as the Poison Squad, but some savvy reporter media people said, oh, let's call it the Poison Squad. And it became a tremendous um, kind of hit, media hit. Um, and that was in the f like 1902. Um, and he gradually uh, increased the dose of preserv preservatives added to these guys' diet over the course. Um, he he gradually over the course of several days, he would do them incrementally, until these uh, poor young men f experienced burning of their esophagus and <laughs> awful stomach aches. But the experiment convinced him of the need for for some sort of federal regulation of preservatives and additives. And uh, he really fought hard as an advocate for the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which was the first federal food law um, on the books. And it's a really interesting piece of legislation because for the first time it really came up with standards for hygiene. Um, and it outlawed the most harmful preservatives, which at the time they were using things like formaldehyde. Yes, the formaldehyde from, you know, like science uh, dissecting frogs in seventh grade. Um, but uh, but it did kind of allow, it made acceptable the use of other um, preservatives, and they really became kind of part of our diet, of course. And those, those standards that they set um, were also based on larger scale production. So the law also kind of started this trend of industry consolidation, which of course has snowballed all through the 20th century. And lastly, I think it, um, at a time when people were anxious about foods and what was happening to them, um, seeing a label on foods that said, you know, made in accordance with the Federal Pure Food and Drug Act, gave people a sense of confidence and made them maybe breathe a sigh of relief and, and relinquish some of their sense of responsibility for knowing about their foods. We now don't know about our foods very much at all. Yeah. And we're currently in the midst of a, a debate about organic foods and local foods and it's often posed as a, a dilemma for us, whether we want to buy local or buy organic. And I think that's a false dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's definitely a false dichotomy. And um, I think, you know, people who are who are thinking about those distinctions um, are really advanced in this regard. I mean, they're already really starting to ask the hard questions. And those are hard questions. Um, but most people are still not paying attention. Um, in general, I think that we kind of need to do more of both. You know, we need to support local farms whenever we can, shopping at farmers markets and local farm stands at markets that support local farmers. It's a great way to do that, this and a great way to get delicious food. We also need to support organic agriculture and push um, agriculture of all scales in that direction, I really believe. And so... Um, to me, it seems like there are opportunities to do both. Um, some people don't have the opportunity to buy from a farmer's market in the winter, let's say. Or, um, so I think that each of us needs to just look hard at the situation and do our best to figure it out. You know, I'm, one of the things I learned in writing my book is we've come to expect the quick and easy, you know, the brand name, the one word, you know, that we just want to shop quickly and figure it out. And really, we might need to train ourselves to be thinking more in terms of stories, to look a little further. Um, and of course, it turns out to be a rewarding thing to do, too, if you actually can track down foods with good stories. And at, as at your local farmer's market. Right. <laughs> yeah. We've been speaking with Ann Velisis, 
Her new book is called Kitchen Literacy. Thank you for joining me, Anne. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.